Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Hello, and welcome to the Psychology Podcast with Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman, where we give you insights into the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. Each episode will feature a new guest who will stimulate your mind and give you a greater understanding of yourself, others, and the world we live in. Hopefully, we'll also provide a glimpse into human possibility. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the podcast. Now, I'm really excited to introduce my guest, Susan David. Susan is an award-winning psychologist on the faculty of Harvard Medical School. She is a co-founder and co-director for the Institute of Coaching at the McLean Hospital, and she's the author of the number one Wall Street Journal best-selling book, Emotional Agility, Get Unstuck, Embrace Change, and Thrive in Work and Life. Susan David, it's so great to have you on the podcast. It is great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. I've been willing to chat with you for a really long time. I'm a great admirer of your work and you as a person as well. You know, I hear a bit of an accent from you. Where are you from? I am originally from South Africa, but I've lived in Australia, New Zealand, backpacked around the world for two years, and I'm now in Boston. So it's not a simple accent. Yeah, sure. And your early childhood experiences certainly shaped a lot of the research you do today, right? And sort of your own theories. Absolutely. So I grew up in apartheid South Africa. And while I was a white South African and therefore not subject to so much of the cruelty and trauma as so many of my fellow South Africans, it was nonetheless a time of great chaos. And so from a very early age, I became interested in this key question, what does it take internally in the way we deal with our thoughts, our emotions, and our stories that ultimately helps us to thrive in a world that is complex and difficult and often unpredictable, which as we all know, even today, you know, no matter where people are located, the world is very much like that for pretty much all of us. Absolutely. And when we're really young, that unpredictability often triggers anxiety and fear, but it doesn't have to trigger anxiety and fear as we become mature adults, right? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I mean, I just remember from a very early age, just becoming very curious about these ideas. And, you know, as you speak to, you know, when I was slightly older, when I was 15, my father was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And I experienced so much of, I think, what so many of us do, which is people saying, you know, just be happy, just be positive, everything will be okay, everything will be fine. What I realized from that experience is that when one goes to difficulty and when one shows up to difficulty and processes it effectively, that ultimately that can shape a life that feels resilient and connected and sometimes uh, richer. Yeah. And I noticed in that whole description, you didn't use the word happiness once. Can you tell me a little bit what the paradox of happiness is? 
Yeah, so I explore this in my book, Emotional Agility, which is this idea that we live in a culture that effectively tells us to be happy. We live in a culture that tells us that no matter what's going on in the world around us, that if we simply think positive, and even if we chase happiness, you know, there's so many books and every which way we turn, we find information on how we can become happier. And so there's so much in the world that tells us that chasing happiness and thinking in a way that is positive ultimately is what will help us to be happier. Um, And yet what I found in my experience, and part of this was a very personal experience, and I'll share with listeners a little bit about what this was, which is I remember when my father was diagnosed with cancer and I had this very odd situation where I then went to school and so many of my peers felt uncomfortable with the fact that they knew that my father was dying and then dead. And so they dropped all discussion about their own fathers from their everyday, you know, from yeah. when we conversations and so on. And so there was this massive avoidance that went on on the one hand where people were basically suggesting that if we just thought positive, felt positive, things would be fine. And then I had this remarkable, remarkable English teacher and she knew what was going on for me and she invited us, the whole class, to keep journals. And so I engaged in what effectively became a secret, silent correspondence with this incredible woman where every day I would write about my experience and seeing my father dying and the sense of loss and regret and guilt and all of the things that comes with it. And this woman writing back to me, asking, how are you? And helping me to process. And what I realized afterwards is it was that. It was the showing up to my emotion. It was the labeling of my emotion. It was the experiencing the experience that ultimately helped me to get through it and to be resilient. That makes a lot of sense. Do you think any part of it has to do with your personality as well? Like, are there people who maybe are just naturally, because of their sunny disposition or whatever, you know, gravitate more towards happiness as a way of coping? I just wonder that. I don't know if that's true. I'm just wondering. Look, I'm sure, and certainly in my research, I'm an emotions researcher by background, and but I trained as a clinical psychologist. And, you know, as we know, there are different personality genetic predispositions that come together in particular ways. But I do feel that a lot of the societal discourse around happiness is actually ultimately making us less resilient and more avoidant of the reality of our lives. And so, you know, I recently had a very interesting and very sad conversation with a friend of mine who had been diagnosed with stage four breast cancer. And she said to me, it's the tyranny of positivity. She said to me, if it was just a case of being positive and thinking positive, all of the friends in my stage four breast cancer support group would be alive today. They are the most positive people that I knew. And by everyone telling us, just be positive, everything will be fine, what that somehow does is it actually makes me feel culpable in my own death, that I somehow couldn't think my way out of it, that I wasn't positive enough to bring good energy and good experiences, you know, a la the secret, to my world. And so I do think that, yes, there's genetic differences, there are many different things that we know, but I also think that there is a cultural discourse very often around positive thinking and happiness that doesn't necessarily serve us. And this woman's experience, she died recently and she said to me, my experience of people saying to me, just think positive, what that did is it took away from the authenticity of my experience and the ability for me to be in a real way with the people that I loved. Because I felt that if I was scared or fearful, that somehow I was letting people down. Wow, that's pretty powerful. And I know that that way of that story really resonates with a lot of people. I've seen you in some of your articles write about it and it gets a lot of views. So there's definitely something in this that's resonating 
with people and maybe a lot of people are fed up with positivity. <laughs> they're, they're looking for something deeper. Yeah, I mean, and just to be clear, I'm not anti-happiness. I actually I am. Are you? <laughs> no, I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. Yeah, you know, I'm a, I'm a happy person and I, you know, I mean, I wrote an end-to-end or edited an end-to-end 80-chapter handbook called the Oxford Handbook of Happiness. I'm very interested in the ideas of what ultimately helps people to be happier. But, you know, what's really fascinating is that when we have a, a discourse that basically says your happiness is completely in your control, what that also does is it takes away from our societal responsibility. If you've got someone who is traveling two hours a day to get to and from work because that's the only viable job away from that person's home, if that place that that individual lives is not supported by public transportation and by other, you know, suddenly this individual is traveling four hours a day, which is not unheard of. And you know, would that person over a year, two years, three years be impacted? Would their well-being impacted? Of course. And so when we start to almost imply that if someone's miserable, it's because they haven't been able to think their way out of it, that happiness is simply a choice, what it does is it abrogates our societal responsibility to also think about how our social policies and our transportation policies and our educational policies can and do in very real ways impact on people's well-being. Well, that was very well said. Thank you. <laughs> what do you make of happy people? I mean, it seems like happy people aren't, you know, taking the flip side, people who do seem to be happy on average in their lives. It doesn't seem to be something terribly tied up with a lot of the things we think that it would be, like money or social status or lots of other things. You know, when you edited this Oxford Handbook of Happiness, what are some key things you learned from that book before we dive into your emotional agility work? Well, for example, one of these being how our social policies and how in many ways in our society, we have this idea that people can simply think their way to happiness. And I think that what that does, and certainly the work that I've done in emotions and in thinking, is what it starts to suggest is that we over invest in the thoughts that we have and we over invest in chasing happiness. Now, again, I'm not anti-happiness, but what the research is showing us is that people who overly strongly strive towards happiness as a goal, you know, they set themselves up and they want to be happier. What the research shows us over time is that those individuals actually become less happy over time. So, Happiness is something that really comes from firstly being able to be with ourselves in particular ways. And that's something that I explore in emotional agility in ways that are real, compassionate, courageous, curious, that allow us to be able to be with the fullness of all our emotions, not just the ones that feel good. And then, secondly, we know that. People who land up being happy over time are individuals who pursue activities that are intrinsically valuable to them and values aligned rather than I'm trying to buy a new house because it's going to make me happy. Definitely dovetails the research I've seen as well. Thanks for explaining that. So, what is emotional agility and why is it a better way forward than happiness? So, one of the key things questions that I've been interested in my work and particularly in writing emotional agility is this. What does it take internally in the way we deal with our thoughts, our emotions, and our stories that enable us to thrive in the world? In the world, not as we wish it to be, but the world as it is, which is often complex and where life's fragility and beauty are bound up in one another. You know, we're young until we're not, we're in jobs we love until we aren't, we have hopes and dreams and some of those don't work out. And so I was really interested in these ideas, you know, what does it take internally in terms of how we work with and be with ourselves that ultimately help us to thrive? And so emotional agility is effectively the ability to be with ourselves in ways that are courageous compassionate and curious. And each of those components, courage, compassion, and curiosity are key to emotional agility. 
And then to ultimately be able to learn from our inner experience in ways that help us to forge a life that is values aligned, where we can learn from our difficulties, where we can learn from our emotions, and where we can take steps that are congruent with our values. So what's the ultimate goal of emotional agility then? So the goal of emotional agility is not to be happier. Happiness often will come as a byproduct when you are with yourself in a way that is compassionate, curious, and courageous. But emotional agility is simply the ability to be effectively with yourself. And the goal then is, or not really a goal per se, but the end point is that one is able to live life in a way that is congruent with who one wants to be in the world, with the life that you want to have truly based on your values and based on what's important to you. So it's not about, oh my goodness, I want to be happier. Let me do all these things to get happier. It's much more that we know that people who live fulfilling lives are people who are able to every day act in ways that feel congruent with their innermost values, with their innermost heartbeat. Mm. And so if we can be with our thoughts and emotions in ways that allow us to do that, we ultimately will be able to take steps forward in parenting more effectively and leading more effectively and in forging our careers and so on. That sounds great. I just thought of uh, something in my head while you were talking. Shouldn't a part of emotional agility be also being flexible in your values? Shouldn't we be flexible in terms of like being able to be like, you know what? My values differ from your values. Maybe I should entertain your opinion. Well, so I think there are two aspects to this. Firstly, there's the evolution of one's own values. And I do talk about this fairly significantly in where I talk about, for example, when to grit and when to quit. Oh, yeah. I have that on my list to talk to you about. Yeah. The idea that, you know, sometimes what can happen is we can grow up and we have a sense of what our values are. And then, you know, 10 or 15 years down the line, we realize that our values have evolved. We have evolved. The context has evolved. And so a very, very important part of emotional agility is the idea that we have a sense of what our core values are, and it's important to move in the direction of those values, but we also shouldn't become so hooked on those values that those values then start to hold us back and constrain us. So I very much, in my approach, have this view that values are fundamental but that they shouldn't dominate us and we should actually evolve and embrace the changing of our values over time as well. Absolutely. And I love that section in your book about grit. I suppose I interpreted that section more about goals than values because you say explicitly that values are different than goals. And people who are in the grit space are seem to be obsessed with goals has been my experience. But what you just said just now makes a lot of sense. And I really appreciate you saying that. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I think it's a really important part. I mean, when we think even about the values that we grow up with, you know, often what starts to happen is we start to develop what is called clients, which is that our parents have a particular value and we then develop that value because our parents have that value. And then over time, we start recognizing that our maybe even once deeply held value is no longer something that we feel as connected with. And so a really important part of emotional agility is being able to embrace the world and ourselves as changing and evolving human beings. And when we're able to do that, we are able to bring ourselves in ways that are much more authentic and connected to our experiences. So a lot of this sounds related to acceptance and commitment therapy. I was wondering if you were influenced at all by that perspective and sort of what connections there are between the idea of emotional agility and some of the core principles of ACT therapy. So very much so. My background is as a clinical psychologist and a lot of the work that I did originally was in ACT. So very, you know, a lot of the ideas in ACT around uh, self-compassion, about not trying to think of thoughts as, you know, wrong or right, but they just are being able to notice our thoughts and our emotions and being able to be values aligned. So a lot of that is very heavily influenced by ACT. 
And then beyond that, a lot of my work is also really influenced by much of the research in emotions, emotion regulation, what emotion regulation actually looks like and how to bring effective emotion regulation to the context that we face every day, you know, when we, with our spouse and our relationships, in our parenting at work. What are typical ways that we might deal with our difficult experiences? For example, pushing those emotions aside or dwelling on them. And then how might they not actually be serving us? How might those strategies, when used in characteristic ways, not serve us? Like it. I like it. I can get behind this approach. It does seem like emotion regulation is is huge. And it does seem like emotion regulation is one of the primary factors underlining every single form of psychopathology. Maybe not the thought disorders as much, but even the thought disorders a little bit. But if you look at, you know, the emotional mood disorders and I mean emotion regulation is just such an important core of a lot of mental illness in society as well as mental wellness. Yeah, I mean, emotion regulation is just so fundamental. And again, to what we were talking about earlier, is that a lot of the societal narrative doesn't really help in this respect. A lot of the societal narrative tells us to push difficult emotions aside or, you know, we should just be happy. And so a lot of times I think, you know, one of the things that I explore in emotional agility is even in raising children, we often, with the very best of intentions, will, when our child comes home from school and says, you know, I'm really sad, no one would play with me, we often with very good intentions jump in what I call emotional helicoptering and, you know, said our child, don't worry, I'll play with you or let's go bake cupcakes. Or, And what I'm really interested in is how even from a very young age, we can teach our children that emotions are to be feared or emotions are to be pushed aside. And what this often does is it takes away from the child's ability to learn really, really core emotion regulation skills that ultimately are fundamental to self-regulation in general, resilience, grit, almost every attribute that we see that is critical from an educational perspective you see the makings of that in how the child is able to ultimately regulate or not his or her emotions. So breaking down these different aspects of becoming an emotionally agile individual, one of the first steps is we tend to get hooked on our thoughts. I was wondering if you could tell me what are some common hooks and then how can we get unhooked? Sure, absolutely. So the idea of being hooked is really that our thoughts, our emotions, and the stories that we tell ourselves. So for example, thoughts like, I'm not good enough, or I'm not cut out for that job. Emotions, things like sadness, fear, stories, larger stories of, you know, I'm not deserving of love, or I would really love to be involved in this particular career, but actually, I don't think that I've got what it takes. So we all have these thoughts, emotions, stories, and there's nothing wrong with them. Again, you know, society tells us that we need to think positive thoughts because our thoughts make us. But we have tens of thousands of thoughts every day. And that's our brains just doing the job that our brains were evolved to do, which is try to protect us and look after us. And the same goes for our emotions. So what I talk about in emotional agility is The idea that these thoughts, emotions, and stories, there's nothing inherently wrong with them. However, what can start to happen is they can start to dominate our actions in ways that are values incongruent. So, for example, my husband's about to start in on the finances. I'm just going to leave the room. So even if my value is having a clean relationship with that person and I know that actually coming to a place of honesty around our finance is important, I might let my thought, my emotion, my story drive me. Or I would really love to partake in this particular career, but I'm just not going to try because there's no point. So there's nothing inherently wrong in these thoughts, emotions, stories, but when they start to dominate our actions in ways that 
take us away from our values, that's when we are hooked. That is the idea of being hooked. So we caught like a fish on the line and are unable to get free. So I talk about this idea and, you know, really, really lovely within this is that listeners will have heard is this beautiful idea from uh, Viktor Frankl, this idea that between stimulus and response, there is a space. And in that space is our power to choose. And it's in that choice that comes our growth and freedom. So when we are hooked, there's no space between stimulus and response. I think or I feel and I act. And the different processes, very, very practical that I talk about in emotional agility are processes that are key to enabling us to get off the hook and to ultimately be effective with ourselves in situations that are important to us in every aspect of how we love, live, parent, and lead. Yeah. So you mentioned the stepping out stage a little bit already as a way to get unhooked. So I guess that's a way of getting unhooked. This is all very Buddhist, by the way. Yeah. And a lot of background and of course, a lot of the, a lot of uh, therapies, for example, DBT Act and so on, there is because emotion regulation is a core aspect of a lot of those therapeutic approaches. And of course, in Buddhism, there is a particular approach to noticing our emotions and thoughts as emotions and thoughts. In other words, our emotions are data, not directions. And being able to notice that and recognize that is fundamental. One of the things that I talk about in emotional agility is the idea of what I call showing up. And what I mean by showing up is the idea that we so often enter into a space with ourselves where we say things like, I'm unhappy in my job, but at least I've got a job. So let me just forge forward. Or, you know, I've got this thought, but I shouldn't have it. And so we spend so much time often either trying to push our thoughts, emotions, and stories aside, or we hold on to them so tightly in a ruminative way. And neither of those can be helpful because all of them basically use a whole lot of cognitive resource to work with what just is there. And so a core part of what I talk about when I speak to this idea of showing up is to enter into the space of willingness with oneself where we can open our hearts to the fact that, you know, when my dad was dying, I felt regret or I felt guilt and that those emotions are what fundamentally help to make us whole and rich as human beings. And that even beyond that, we can often beneath our difficult emotions are signals to things that we care about. If someone is feeling guilty because they're traveling too much from their kids, that emotion, that feeling of guilt is a sign that, you know, what is important to you is presence and connectedness. Or if you upset that your idea was stolen at work, underneath that emotion is often a core value, which is about equity and fairness. And so instead of moving into a space where we grappling with and trying to push stuff aside, if we can instead show up to that and do the simplest but least expected thing, and that is nothing. In other words, my thoughts and my emotions just are, and I can be with them in ways that are curious and compassionate. Then what that does is it gives me so much more energy and space to think about how I want to shape the situation effectively. Where does this put cognitive behavioral therapy then? Because now there's mindful cognitive, MCBT, which I've talked to Tim Beck about and he seems to like. But where does like the original cognitive therapy stand? Like, is there still value in cognitively like identifying your, your cognitive distortions and trying to actively work on changing the meaning and interpretation of them and stuff? So it's, it's, I mean, the literature on this is fairly complex. And of course, there's almost no pure, pure CBT. You know, there's so many at this point, different aspects of CBT, ones that integrate mindfulness and ones that integrate different philosophies around these types of things. 
But one of the things that I do find really interesting when it comes to this question is when you do look at this idea of trying to, for example, push our thoughts and emotions aside, you know, do away with those thoughts and emotions, what we do start to see is an amplification effect. So this idea that when we push our difficult thoughts and emotions aside, that those thoughts and emotions actually boomerang back. You know, we try not to think of chocolate cake because we're on a diet and we dream of chocolate cake. And so in the emotion regulation literature, what becomes really interesting is when this process is happening. So when people are doing what we call early intervening strategies around their thoughts and their emotions. So for example, you know, I'm upset with this person, but let me perspective take. What do I think they're feeling or where are they coming from? And so this is what we call an early intervening strategy. It's early on in the timeline, if you like, around this difficult thought and emotion. And I use that as just one example. That kind of navigating thoughts and looking for meaning and interpretation early on tends to be more successful. However, when we are late intervening, so for example, I'm already fully angry, really upset, really dissatisfied with this particular situation, and now I'm just going to try to rationalize my way out of it or to not think about it, we know that those late intervening strategies tend to be less less effective. And of course, you know, with CBT, their data showing CBT can be very effective for some aspects, but not necessarily for others. So the literature is complex on this. But what's really just fascinating is, I think, this emergence and emergence of being able to think about our inner world in very different ways that maybe, you know, 10 or 15 or 20 years ago were much more purist. But certainly, you know, the approach via ACT is not an approach where one spends a lot of time trying to dispute a thought. It isn't, no. No, trying to push the thought aside. It's much more about noticing the thought with compassion, recognizing the thought, recognizing the humanity of the fact that you've had something that feels difficult, and then making choices that are values aligned. Yeah, you know, but as you said, the research literature is complex and I think the jury's out on which approach of therapy is most of you know, that's an empirical question. I've seen research showing that CBT is about as effective as ACT. They're kind of on par when it comes to certain things, you know, anxiety, depression, but you know, CBT is more helpful. The thing with mindfulness based CBT, which is becoming a little a bit yeah. hot, it's a bit hot these days. It seems like anything that has mindfulness in it is hot these days, is what I've noticed. Everyone jumps on that bandwagon. The thing with mindfulness-based CBT is that it's if you show up enough in your model, you know, the showing up part, if you show up enough, you start to see these patterns, these cognitive distortions. So showing up is very beneficial for eventually kind of noticing reoccurring patterns that maybe that knowledge of those cognitive distortions can be valuable in, in being able to recognize them. And, and I think it dovetails with your research and what you talk about about the importance of labeling your emotions. So I think these things is very compatible with each other. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, it is, I think, when one looks at the principles around emotional agility, which is how do you create space between your thoughts and your emotions and actions? So how do you create that space and how do you then allow yourself and enable yourself to act in ways that are ultimately, you know, values aligned and congruent with the person that you want to be? If you are constantly in a space where you are pushing aside, jostling, arguing with yourself, rationalizing with yourself, you often aren't entering into a space with yourself where you're saying, what is this emotion telling me? You know, this emotion is telling me that I'm less secure in my job than I thought I was. (laughs) What is like, what is this emotion telling me? Again, our our emotions are data, not directions. You know, who's in charge, the thinker or the thought? Who's in charge, the emotion or me, the person who can feel the emotion and still make choices. But when we enter into a space with ourselves that's noticing and accepting, we're able to use that 
going forward. So we recognize the patterns we get into, as you mentioned. We notice that there are particular things that trip us up. We notice that there's specific times when we get defensive because now instead of getting defensive and getting hooked into the space, we can observe the thoughts. We can notice them. Doesn't it ever get, can't mindfulness get exhausting too though? <laughs> like if I'm constantly like being mindful of, of all my thoughts, or sometimes I just want to like just be, you know, sometimes I just want to like skydive. I don't want to like, oh, let me be, a, let me think about, you know, can't that get exhausting too? So just to be clear, in emotional agility, I, I talk about this idea, you know, I talk about this fact that like, a lot of people will promote mindfulness as the, you know, absolute panacea to everything. And you've got to brush your teeth mindfully and you've got to put you up do. the you mindfully and, you know, you've got to do all these things. And I, you know, number one, that's exhausting. Number two, you know, we don't actually know from an empirical perspective that being mindful all the time, 24-7 is actually helpful. So what I'm talking about is a very, very specific type of mindfulness. I'm talking about that when you are hooked, when you're noticing yourself so trapped, so crawling into a story, that that story has started to become a prison around you, that it's started to own you, that it's often around those more difficult thoughts and emotions and stories that mindfulness is helpful. So I talk about mindfulness in a very, very specific way, and it's not the broad brushstroke, you know, mindfulness for everything type of approach. You know, I think that it gets fairly, you know, ridiculous when you are taking the trash out monthly, of course, except for if it works for you. If it works for you, if it serves you, if it serves your life, if it helps you to live in ways that are more compatible with how you want to live, then that's helpful. So it's not a, you know, dogmatic approach, but what I very much talk about in emotional agility is the idea that it's mindfulness for a specific purpose. It's targeted mindfulness around our emotions, thoughts, and stories. That's great. And you, um, I, I see another similarity with cognitive behavioral therapy, and that's you know the what's the funk thing or what's the functional value of this. I mean, it seems related to identifying cognitive distortions, right? Yeah, and the same that what the funk is both about our thoughts, but it's also about our emotions. Because so I, I'm an emotions researcher by background, and what's really interesting is emotions have had bad press. I mean, in therapeutic <laughs> endeavors, emotions are seen as the very bad buy or end product of interventions. You know, we'll change our thinking and then we'll feel better. But as an emotions researcher, what I was really interested in is our emotions have evolved to help us as a species to survive. You know, it is really important that you recognize that the person who you thought was about to give you a bear hug is really about to attack you. <laughs> and so this idea that we... It happens to me all the time. All the time, all the time. So we, again, in society, we tend to treat emotions as these bad things, that these poor phenomenon that we need to push away. And yet our emotions have evolved to help us shape our lives. If I know what I feel guilty about and what the value is that is underneath that emotion, if I know that I'm upset because my idea was stolen at work and it's around issues of equity and fairness, what that ultimately helps me to do is to shape my world, to look for a new job, to be more present with my family. And so those emotions are fundamental. And this idea of what the funk is not only about our cognitions, but also around what is the function of the emotion? Yeah. What is the emotion trying to get me? And is that thing that it's trying to get me, again, serving me or not? Is yeah. it giving me avoidance? And actually that avoidance is taking me away from something that's fruitful. Yes. Yeah, it sounds good. Before we move on, I want to ask you this. One of the things that I talk about in emotional agility is this idea that we all are subject to social contagion. Sure. So the idea that 
you know, you might be trying to lose weight, for example, and you're in an airplane and your seat partner buys candy, we know statistically that around about 30% more likely to buy candy based on what your seat partner does, even if you don't know that person. So we all know that we're all subject to social contagion. We see this in epidemiological studies around obesity and around depression, for example. And so one of the things that I explore in, in this idea of values is that values are so often seen as being abstract. Let's just move on from them. And yet, we know in values affirmation exercises, we know that when people spend even a little bit of time thinking very explicitly about why am I doing this? You know, why am I a first-generation college goer? Why am I a woman in a completely male-dominated profession? Why is this thing important to me? We know that when people spend a little bit of time thinking about their values in an explicit way, that that protects them from social contagion. It protects them from the kind of biases that can actually become turned upon oneself. You know, I've got a setback at work and I'm a first generation, you know, or I've failed a test and I'm a first generation college goer. We know that people are more likely to drop out of college at that point. But if they've done an exercise where they've thought about why am I at college to begin with, then it helps them to stay the course. So very much, you know, values are seen as being cheesy. Oh, I don't think they're cheesy. Yeah, but, but you know, think, no, but often in businesses, you know, values are seen as being things on walls in businesses about what the company believes, what the organization believes. But what I talk about in emotional agility is how values are qualities of action. Oh, yeah. Every single day we get to make moves that are towards or away from oh, yeah. those values in really critical ways. I uh, think that the values are, of course, extremely important. But you talk about something interesting. You say that it's possible to have overcompetence. Yes. What in the world is, what is that? And what does it mean to be whelmed? So in emotional agility, I explore ways then, you know, I explore these four critical movements around emotional agility, showing up, stepping out, walking your wine, moving on. And in moving on, I focus a lot on how our brains are wired for comfort. Our brains are wired to be in jobs that are predictable, be in relationships that are predictable. And even those relationships that we truly care about, you know, our child comes home from school and sometimes without even looking up from our cell phone, we'll say, how was your day? And my 16-year-old son, without looking up from his, might say, fine. And there's nothing inherently wrong in that, except if it's your precious interaction time that is day in and day out, day in and day out. Then what you've gotten into is a habit that doesn't necessarily serve your values and serve the way you want to be in that relationship with that person. So in emotional agility, I talk about how as human beings, and we know this from the cognitive research, is that we're so wired for comfort, but sometimes in ways that don't serve us. And so I explore these different ideas that we don't want to be overcompetent. When we are overcompetent, where we can do our job with our eyes shut, or where we go out to dinner with our spouse and we know exactly what they're going to order and what the conversation is going to be about over dinner then what that's showing very often is a lack of growth in that particular sphere of our lives where we're comfortable but not necessarily learning or growing. By the same token, we don't want to be over-challenged. You know, we don't want to always be, where do I stand in this relationship? Or, oh my goodness, you know, have I got a job today? What's going on? So I talk very much about this idea of living to the edge of our ability, this nice. state of whelm, where you're not overwhelmed, you're not underwhelmed, you're just in the state of whelm and moving towards the edge of ability. Um, often in practical terms, what that looks like is a greater level of breadth where you are doing new and different things, for example, with your partner, with your spouse, in your job, or greater levels of depth where you are exploring, you know, having new conversations. But again, this is not just 
for the sake of adding more to our lives, it's again these values and action coming here. It's like, is this thing yeah. connected with the life that I want? Well, yeah, I love that perspective. I mean, I think that's conducive to well-being. You know, it's fundamental. It's fundamental to well-being. You know, there's all this work around job engagement, and I do mm-hmm. a lot of in job engagement and employee engagement. But this is fundamental to life engagement. You know, how do we stay connected with growth and journey in our lives in ways that are really fundamentally important to our flourishing and thriving? And now we come full circle because you can see very much that ultimately these processes are pivotal yeah. to flourishing and thriving and happiness. Absolutely. But it's not about setting those up as goals. Absolutely. Well, then this obviously has implications for work and education. In the work, you hinted at this idea of job crafting just now. You're talking about sort of setting up the conditions of who you want to be. So what does job crafting look like in the workplace? So job crafting, in moving on, again, I talk about how do we make these tiny tweaks to our habits that our values aligned. And one of the things that I find, I I work a lot with large organizations around people strategy. And so in my day-to-day work, what I often come across is this idea that so often we think of changes, for example, a change in career or a change in job as being something that needs to be major. You know, I need to give up everything and find something else. Yet very often for practical purposes, because you've got to put dinner on the table or for other reasons, those means are neither desirable nor accessible. And yet we all can find ways that we can make tiny tweaks values-aligned changes to our job. So, for example, what this might look like is, you know, what are things that are gratifying to you that do connect with you in your job but that you might not get an opportunity to do frequently? How do you put your hand up for those more? Or, you know, what are other relationships that you can pursue? So often in job crafting, it's how do you change or can you find ways that you can tweak the actual structure of the tasks Hmm. or of the relationships or of the context itself. So, you know, who you interacting with or which meetings you're going to. For example, you know, you aren't in the sales department and yet you really love connecting with ideas around sales. So how can you find ways that you can bring your expertise to a sales meeting? So I talk about this idea in very practical ways but that ultimately, again, are incredibly beneficial to people. Because we know from psychology that, you know, change is not an event. Change is a process. And change so often comes about through making small but incredibly meaningful shifts to our day-to-day lives and habits. Yeah, I mean, you do a really good job talking about that, about how we make these you call them tweaks, right? Yeah, I call them tiny tweaks. Tiny you know, tweaks. values aligned changes. And so that's relieving that they don't have to be these monumental life changes, but that these small tweaks add up. And I think related to this, well, you already talked about the, we didn't call it the teeter-totter principle, but you already talked about it when you were talking about overcompetence and growth aspects. So that seems to be related to that as well. I would like to end, we've chatted for so long, and I want to be respectful of your time, but education is like our area of mutual, Yes. one of our, I think we have many areas of mutual interest, but it seems like your work has such strong implications for children. How can we raise emotionally agile children? So these are, this is critical, and I actually recently was interviewed for an article in the New York Times, if listeners are interested in just a quick read on this called Teaching Your Child Emotional Agility. And I explore this in one full chapter in the book. And really the idea behind this is that, again, we so often, our kids come home from school and they're upset about something, and we can inadvertently do what we call teach display rules. We can teach our child that, you know, when you're angry, go to your room and come up when you've got a smile on your face, or sadness is to be feared. And so when we do this, when we, with the best of intentions, 
rush in to save our children or to strip away difficult experiences, we also strip away their capacity to learn a couple of key things. Firstly, that emotions and thoughts pass. Hmm. This is fundamental. When we experience depression, our thoughts and emotions are here to stay. That is, you know, from an experiential perspective, often that is what it feels like. And yet a critical aspect of learning about thoughts and emotions is that they are transient. There can be value beneath them. They data, not directions, and they pass. So it's only when we allow our children to be with their difficult experiences that our children learn, gee, I was feeling sad five minutes ago, but now I'm not sad any longer. So that's first really very, very important. Um, another aspect that's critical to raising emotionally agile children is helping our children at a very young age to label their emotions. So we know that at age two, three years old, children have the ability to differentiate between sad versus mad. You know, are you sad now or are you feeling angry? And helping our children to label emotions turns out to be fundamentally important, again, to lifelong well-being. Because what this does is it helps them to develop the ability to notice an emotion, to observe that emotion, but to also see it for what it is, to basically be able to develop a meta view around the emotion. So there are these critical skills that are, again, very, very practical, but extremely important to grit. You know, how do you persevere with something unless you're able to recognize your frustration, understand who you want to be in that frustration, and move forward? Critical to resilience, critical to well-being, critical to lifelong success. And so I think these skills are fundamental. And of course, they're skills that we can help both in education, but also in day-to-day -day parenting. You know, and I always want to say, you know, I'm not the paragon of virtue with this. I give lots of examples in emotionality of how I, you know, that's okay with my own children. Um, because, of course, as parents or teachers or educators, we're all just trying to do the best we can. Oh, yeah. You know, and I think that that's really important to recognize and, and notice as well. Well, that was a very authentic comment you made, so I appreciate it. And vulnerable comment. You do talk about the importance of autonomy and encouraging autonomy in children as well. Yeah. Do you want to give maybe one or two ways you can encourage autonomy? Yeah, absolutely. So encouraging autonomy is really critical. We, again, in education and even, you know, it creeps in in different ways in parenting, is we so often become focused on extrinsic markers for success. So, you know, if you pee in the potty, I'll give you five prizes. And if you you know, I'll give you M&Ms and, you know, standardized testing. And so there's this whole world in children that effectively gets structured around extrinsic validation. Yeah. And what is really actually fundamental is that the child learns to recognize his or her own why. Who am I? Who do I want to be in the world? What can I be proud of? And again, just to be clear, I'm not saying, you know, giving your child a treat is a, you know, there's nuance around this that's really, yeah. really important. Yeah. But there are a couple of ways that we know we can encourage our child's autonomy. So firstly, wherever possible to give them a choice, wherever possible, you know, give them a choice. Where we can't give them a choice, wherever possible, give them a rationale. So for example, with my three-year-old daughter, I don't give her a choice as to whether she wants to cross the road by herself or holding my hand, because that is a issue of safety. But a rationale around, you know, cars can see me, but they can't see you, helps the child to develop a sense of the reasoning behind decisions. And then another aspect of autonomy is helping the child to also understand their own why? So we know that from a very early age, if we say things to kids like, you know, you have to invite that person to your birthday party, 
even if you don't want to, because that's what good people do, that what we're starting to do is we're starting to create what I spoke about earlier on, which is a sense of pliance, which is forcing children around particular values without helping them to understand who they want to be. And so a conversation that's around, we have to invite this child to the birthday, and that's what we have to do, is not necessarily as effective around developing autonomy than a conversation like, what kind of friend do you want to be? Who do you want to be as a person? What does it feel like when you get invited or you don't get invited to birthday parties? Now, who do you want to be in the situation in sending out your invitations? So what we're doing with autonomy is we're trying to give as much choice, as much rationale, and also help the child to develop a sense of who they are, what their character is, what their values are within the situation. And just to be clear, this is not about you know, not having expectations of children or not being clear around those expectations. Mm-hmm. It's rather about how do you help children to develop fundamental character and emotional agility in the context of expectations. Wow. That's some really good advice for parents. So last question, how can I become real? How can you become real? Yeah. I want to be real. You want to be real? You want to be real? I'll give you. (laughs) So there are a couple of aspects to emotional agility that I think are really important. We've spoken a lot, but firstly, showing up to yourself and not punishing yourself or invalidating yourself when you have difficult thoughts and emotions. Being able to be compassionate towards yourself, recognizing that you are doing the best that you can in the circumstances that you face and with the resources that you've got in life. This is fundamental. Learning how to hear the heartbeat of your own why. So we live in a world which encourages us to be in a never-ending Iron Man or Iron Woman competition. And we often lose sight of who do I want to be in this space? What is meaningful to me? Who is the leader, the parent, the person that I most want to be here? So connecting more with what is your why. And then looking for ways that you can develop greater sense of living at the edge of your ability, habits, mindsets, and goals that are values aligned. So those are some fundamental aspects of emotional agility. And I think the reason that they're part of being real is because they're core to humanity and effectiveness and success. But success, that's not just about a goal and achieving a goal, but just very broadly about living a life that feels well lived. I want to stop there because I want to live a life well lived. Thank you so much, Susan. Really appreciate you chatting. And I I think you've written a really uh, powerful book. Thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks for listening to the Psychology Podcast with Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman. I hope you found this episode just as thought-provoking and interesting as I did. If you'd like to read the show notes for this episode or hear past episodes, you can visit thepsychologypodcast.com. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? 
Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without the essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. I mean, it provides great protection and it's really breathable so you don't get hot. That's a win-win. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. 